straight to live. So. Oh my god, we are live. <laughs> Shit, I guess we've already did the green room. We're going to do the green room. Let's go this. We'll have some fun. All right, so uh, I'm Ray. I'm here with my co-host, Bala Ashar, uh, and co-founder. Uh, L, our awesome producer, and two of our guests to throw in will be popping up secretly, so you'll see him in a bit. Um, quick intro, since we're going backwards. Uh, Sinan, if you could actually quick introduce yourself. What are you talking about today? Where you are? Yeah. Kara will do that. And then what we're going to do is then jump in and do the count. So go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm Sinan Aral. I'm the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. And just a couple of days ago, I released this book, The Hype Machine, which is all about how social media is disrupting our democracies, our economies, and our public health, and how we must adapt. Really, the point of the book is, what do we do? All right. This is going to be awesome. All right. And Carol, awesome. where are you from? Uh, Kara Golden. I'm the founder and CEO of this product, um, Hint Water. Woohoo! Woo and uh, I'm look, Bala's ready to go. Chat about lots of stuff. I I also, since Sinon mentioned it, I also have a book uh, that is in uh, pre-launch at the moment. Comes out October 20th. I'm very excited about. So really excited to be here. Awesome. Can't wait to hear about it. All right. I was going to do the count. We're going to jump into the show and Val's going to do the complete show introductions and we're going to start with Kara. So go ahead. All right. Three, two, one. Hello and uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV show. Send Ray, myself and our distinguished guests your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we'll do our best to answer him during the show. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He is the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. Almost daily, I see him on Yahoo Finance, Fox Business, CNN, Bloomberg. He is, in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter, at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Thanks a lot. Here with my co-founder, Vala Afshar. He is completely stocked with water behind him, and he's also one of the top people to follow on Twitter. <laughs> Not only that, CIO, CEO, CMOs look for him for sage advice uh, as one of the top leaders in digital transformation, thinking about where digital goes and business. And himself, he's an author and a keynote speaker in a lot of events. I'm seeing him everywhere in top events, uh, of course, and at Salesforce events. Um, other than that, um, this show is being sponsored by Robots and Pencils, our first sponsor, and uh, we're happy to have them on board, uh, you know, being able to look at future of design, thinking about where products are going. So definitely check them out uh, and follow them on Twitter at robots and the letter N pencils. So with that, let's who's our first guest? Who are we talking to today? Ray, we've interviewed over 630 some odd guests, but in my household, there hasn't been as much excitement because we're a Hintz family <laughs> with, our, with our first guest. Kara uh, Golden is the founder and CEO of Hint, uh, a healthy lifestyle brand uh, that produces the leading award-winning unsweetened flavored water, delicious water, scented sunscreens that are oxybenzone and paraben-free, as well as plant-based aluminum-free eucalyptus plus lemon deodorant. Kara uh, has received numerous accolades, including being named EY Entrepreneur of the Year, Northern California, one of the Style 2019 Badass 50, <laughs> one of Fast Company's most creative people in business, and, a, and, and Fortune's most powerful women entrepreneurs. The Huffington Post listed Kara as one of the six disruptors in business alongside Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg. Previously, Kara was at AOL, where she helped lead the growth of its shopping and e-commerce business to over a billion-dollar business. Kara launched the Kara Network, a mentoring platform to help other entrepreneurs, as she recently launched the podcast Unstoppable, where she interviews disruptors across various industries. She's the author of Undaunted. We're going to talk about that. And in the book, she gives us awesome advice. Don't let anyone crush your dreams. Undaunted will inspire you to move past your fears and defy the doubters. It doesn't matter where you, uh, whether you feel confident, it matters what you actually do. She's an awesome follow on Twitter at K-A-R-A-G-O-L-D-I-N. Welcome, Kara, to Disrupt TV. 
Thank you. And thanks for the great opening. So nice. And uh, Ray, we'll definitely get you stocked with some more hint. I know you ran out. So we're, uh, we're, we're good at that. So I'm definitely and speaking about being good at that, right? I mean, the middle of the post pandemic, you guys figured out how to work with retailers to get this stuff all the way to everyone's store shelves, um, despite what's been going on and even to people's homes. So I wanted to start there, right? I mean, you guys have done some amazing things um, in the supply chain, thinking about how to reach out to folks. Um, how did that happen? And how did you figure out what needed to go? Because like there was no playbook in the beginning of March. Yeah, there's there hasn't been a playbook my entire life, right? Like so I <laughs> I always talk about, you know, it's just been a matter of trying, right? And actually trying to, you know, make sure that we um are servicing the consumer. And so at the beginning of, you know, I really look at March thirteenth, Friday the thirteenth as as kind right. of you know, a major day for so many people and trying to figure out like, okay, what's going on out there, but also what do we do and, and how do we move this thing forward? Um, this thing, meaning our business. And so we were seeing, seeing out of stock situations and people hoarding shelves, they were hoarding hint. Um, oh it took God, me a little while. Crazy. Yeah. To even imagine, like I kept hearing, like, I was like, why are people hoarding water? Why are people hoarding hint? And um, the bottom line is, is what we noticed um, that weekend was really that stores were seeing this unprecedented situation where not only consumers were coming in and like removing everything from the shelves because they were seeing everybody else. It was like this, you know, this guy that I don't know is doing it. So why don't I do it? And they didn't know how to restock the stuff. And it was just, it was crazy. So like a Target store, for example, they're typically, um, you know, going off of the register data to actually automatically from last year, from last year. <laughs> yeah. And it's but it's like supposed to be replenishing and it was not happening. So we jumped in really quick. One of the most annoying things, I think, when is when people say, like, you've got a problem and like don't really have a solution or a suggestion on how to solve it. So we said, we recognize there's a problem to our stores, but we're going to send truckloads in just, and we'll figure it out later, like the accounting side of it. So we did that. In addition, little, not too many people do this in the beverage industry, but also like a lot of people didn't really recognize that Hint had really built up this business. We had over a million people sitting in our direct-to-consumer uh, list at drinkhint.com and uh, Val is one of them, right? And so we reached out on March 16th and we said like, hey, it, it's really scary out there and we get it, you know, that there's a, that these store shelves are empty and, you know, if if you want Hint, let your store know and we're trying as fast as we can to replenish that. We have plenty of stock in our warehouses, but also you can go to drinkhint.com or to Amazon and order our product and we'll ship it right to your door. You don't you don't even need to go outside. And so that was like insane. I mean, we had over a 60 percent response rate off of that email, which was amazing. So I I, I feel like, you know. We're, we're a brand that really watches the consumer and, and recognizes the fears, frankly, of maybe the consumer and says, hey, we're going to go solve the problem. That's amazing. You have a track record of being bold and customer focused. And so it's 2005 and you're, you decide that you're going to create a company that produces delicious water. Uh, I, you know, I, it reminds me of when Google uh, came to market in 1998. Uh, they were the 21st search engine to enter the market. And I suspect, uh, you know, uh, people were telling you, you're entering a crowded market, bottled water, and yet you knew you had something special. What advice can you give to other entrepreneurs who may be told, ah, there's too many players in this space and it's going to be a tough ride? How do you, where do you get that? That, that confidence and, and passion and sense of doing something big and how can other entrepreneurs develop that mindset? Yeah, I think oftentimes people will doubt you because mm. they associate you with, you know, another brand that really isn't like you at all. So in our case, it was the soda industry. And mm. so while we compete for shelf space, 
we're really and truly a different product and have a different mission, including, you know, that we're trying to get people to drink water. We're not trying to get people to drink soda. And so that is very different, very, you know, health focused um, company. And so when I actually, um, there's a quick story, I was able to get a meeting early on with a soda executive who um, sort of poo-pooed my idea. Um, that was really when I woke up and recognized that it, it you know, they are, they're on one mission. They're going down one river, I'm going down the other river. And so, you know, you can really equate that story, which I talk about in my book, to almost any industry. And you have to look at, are you solving a problem, number one? But also, like, will the consumer respond to this? And you may not know that. So I always suggest to entrepreneurs, go out and try. And you'll learn things. I mean, I think the, where people start to put walls up early on is they need to have a perfect product. And I'm like, launch it. Like, of course, make, it, make sure it's safe in the food industry. Make sure that no one's going to get sick or dies from it, right? Critical. But go and launch it because you're going to learn things about your product I mean, I, the first thing that we did when we launched it in Whole Foods, we, we it was in a clear label. We wanted it clear. We like spent all this time. Everything's supposed to be clear. We get it on the shelf at Whole Foods and we realize that there's lighting at Whole Foods where the consumer can't see the product. And so we're when we were surrounded by vitamin water and all these colorful brands, like you got lost. And, and again, like we like just go out because you're going to see all these little details that nobody will actually tell you. And you can't do it unless you try. I can't believe that that soda executive 15 years later, you're in 30,000 plus stores around the country. You're growing eight times faster than anybody else in your category. Boy, I bet he him or her regrets uh, poo-pooing your idea. <laughs> well, I think it's funny. I, I remember a friend at one of the at one of the large soda companies sent me a deck about a year into uh, founding Hint. This story is not in the book. And uh, and there was a picture of me and it had been photoshopped. And I lived in Marin County where I do live. And I had my hair in braids. And I, you know, I was like this like farmer girl. I was in overalls. Like I, I actually like overalls, but I don't own a pair. And so, and it was, you know, there were reasons like she shops at farmer's markets. You know, she does like, they were painting this picture of me being something that I, wasn't but actually i didn't think it was so bad but they were painting it as like this is the reason why she can't be successful so i love looking back on those pictures you know and i don't rub it in people's face it, what's what's interesting is they typically come to me and they're like i'll run into them at a conference and they'll be like i didn't think this thing was going to work and they own it which i'm like you know i think it's such a beautiful thing that you actually own it that you were wrong and they're like yeah no i was totally wrong like most of the people like actually own the fact that they were you know didn't see the vision of where right. this was going Amazing. it's Amazing. so hard to paint a vision especially when you're breaking new ground i mean congratulations it's really Thank awesome you. let's talk about your new book is there something behind that story and i think you launched what october 20th it's uh called undaunted and but more importantly it's about moving past your fear so tell us a little bit about it and why why did you write it so. Yeah. So for, for years, I would, I would be out speaking and, and founders, again, from every industry um, would say to me like that they're different than me because, you know, they found it or, or they don't have, or they're fearless, I should say. They're, you know, they don't live in, in this undaunted way. They like, you know, they would put up all these walls around themselves to sort of share why you know, I could do it, but they couldn't do it. And as I would tell stories in response, um, answers, you know, their question, I would say, I'm not like that at all. The difference between leaders and people who actually go out and do it is that they try and that they're okay with potentially failing. And that, you know, they, they believe that if they just actually just don't go out and do something that nothing will ultimately get done. And I, I think this is true, not only for entrepreneurs, but also for athletes, for, you know, just a, a general way to live that if you don't ultimately go try that you won't learn. And, and, 
you know, and I, I really try and practice that in every aspect of my life. I mean, Jamie Dimon read my book and he's been kind of a mentor to me over the years. And wow. he said to me that the, you know, the story in the book about the Grand Canyon and how like every year, I mean, I have a fear of heights. That is a fear that I have. And every year I try to overcome that fear and do something that is actually going to make it a little simpler and easier for me to digest. And so my Grand Canyon was really my, you know, my kind of first entree into really committing to this. And mm -hmm. the things that I learned and the challenges that I had in the canyon that day, 22 miles um, in one day, like were, were not what I expected going in. But as I started to encounter these things, what I realized is that things that I had overcome in founding Hint, I was slowly reminding myself, talking to myself about I, I got this. I can do this. There's a lot of things that I wasn't supposed to be able to do. I can do this. And so again, like I really believe that they work off of each other. And more than anything, I wanted to share those stories with people so that they could see in my stories a way for them to actually go out and do it. I mean, if she can do it, I can do it like that. That is the theory behind, you know, doing this. And you know, it's been really uh, exciting. I had never written a book. I never said, you know, friends said to me, did you always want to author a book? And I'm like, no, I didn't want to run a beverage company either. Like, I have no idea. And I'm still learning about the process, too. I, so. love, the, I love the humility. Uh, one of the most successful beverage companies, and you're continuing to learn. That's awesome. So speaking of learning, uh, you know, this a titanic, unprecedented event that affects all of us, uh, the pandemic, um, has really created uh, this new normal. Um, and we had uh, a McKinsey uh, executive on our show a couple of weeks ago, and he demonstrated to us that there has been 10 years of e-commerce adoption just in the last three months. Uh, and he also talked about uh, brand loyalty shock, where 75% of Americans have switched brands during the pandemic for a variety of reasons, uh, availability of the product, quality of the product, value. But the number 75%, he said in the history of McKinsey, they have never seen such uh, incredible shock to brand loyalty. You have a delicious product, an established brand. Can you talk to us about your vision of the future of Hint and how you will invest in creating even a stronger company as we go through these difficult times? Yeah, I'm not surprised to hear that, frankly. Um, and I think some, t you know, when I look at that, I'd be really curious to know um, how much of that is based on supply chain, because I yeah. think that there's another thing going on right now that we're not talking too much about. But Hint has always done everything that we do in the U.S. Again, not because we think that the U.S. is necessarily better, although it's a pretty darn good place. We we basically thought it was easier to produce everything as locally as possible, um, obviously carbon footprint and all of those aspects of it. But I think like that piece really threw a lot of people into, you know, a, a flurry of, of, I don't know what to do. And we're still trying to catch up on, you know, paper goods and bleach and a lot of stuff that ultimately comes out, comes from outside the US or even in our industry, in the soda industry, you know, cans are all coming from Asia. And because we're on a different, timing cycle of you know covid like things have shut down they're opening back up but they're catching up and so it's it's a very complicated situation and in the midst of it people are going online whether to hint or to amazon and just finding you know which paper towel is actually in stock in order right. you know right. to make that happen but i think that the most important thing really for brands is actually staying in touch with their customer and when you think about these large brands who have really relied on, you know, they do the same thing day after day after day, like they don't really have a communication with their customer, right? Mm -hmm. Like they think they do because they're, I don't know, buying ads on CNN, right? Like, but they're not actually communicating with the customer. If they want to tell the customer, for example, that, you know, they are supporting, you know, an initiative or, you know, like, whatever whatever it is they don't have any other way of doing that right. directly with the consumers because everybody else owns their data and so i think that's going to be the most important aspect 
moving forward to every brand. I mean, you know, I have to say we were pretty set up for this time. Mm -hmm. you know, we didn't predict a pandemic, but I think that the other thing that my team was really focused on and, you know, we used to really say to our operations team, who, by the way, my chief operating officer is my husband. So I guess I can say this, that um, you know, we called him a little bit paranoid about not wanting people in the room when we're ultimately filling the bottles because we don't use preservatives in our product. And so, um, you know, it, it's been his goal for the last four years to get all people out of the room because he felt like that's where bacteria is ultimately going to come into the oh, product. Oh, yeah, totally. As of like, fall last year, we had removed all people, all automated. There's no people in the plants. And so long, a longer story than you guys have time for, but most bottled water is actually not regulated by the FDA. It's regulated by nope. states, but we yep. are regulated by the FDA because we use fruit. And so when the FDA was sniffing oh. around looking for where is COVID coming from, they went into all the food manufacturing and then products like Hint. So when sure. they walked into our plants, they were like, there's no people in the room. I mean, there's like, I mean, this is, this is crazy. Right. And so I saw the conversation, you know, around, uh, around, you know, what was happening in the chicken industry and some of these sure, other, sure. and I mean, it really boiled down to, you know, be a little paranoid about like what could happen. Could right. something like COVID happen? And I would be spending my time right now, if I were a company trying to figure out how do I automate Right. a lot of my production as much as possible how do i make it as local as possible and get it as close to my distribution as possible you can have those options of relying on you know factories in another country but i think it's really important to figure out when other countries shut down how do you keep it here and then but i i think it really just boils down to you know not only for our product customer safety but also um you know, making sure that you can service the customer in, in you know, all different scenarios. Um, I think in the retail industry, what I see, um, you know, grocery retail in particular, I mean, who has cropped up uh, through this COVID as, as a very important partner that you should be figuring out how to partner with? Instacart. So, to, so it used to be prior to March, it used to be that you would go and strike deals with Whole Foods and Target and and you know everybody else now while that's important like 60% of the people that are shopping and i've been working all the way through covid merchandising i took a route in marin county so i know this there're all these instagram pick and packers <laughs> in the stores so they don't really care if you have an end cap that you've paid a store for right, right? and i'm not saying that that stuff goes away but like the idea of you not like finding advertising instacart should should come and and get me on their board by the way <laughs> and um you know no i'm just kidding but, what, 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 what's an end cap i haven't been in a store in ages. <laughs> I know, I know, but it's the importance of these new players right for for showing up is is like i mean it it's a whole new landscape cara real quick we've got to run but Tell us a little bit about the funding round. You got a brand new funding round. Your book's coming out October 20th. Um, what's happening in the future? Yeah, so uh, $25 million round. Weren't supposed to be able to raise that over Zoom and COVID, but we did it. Um, the other thing I'm super, super proud about uh, is that we raised it through a actually little known group of women um, called Springboard Capital that only invests yep. in female founded companies where the female founder is the CEO um, and uh, three women uh, partners that are that run it. It's out of New York. Um, awesome, awesome group. So really, really proud to say that we have them in our uh, in our group. Congratulations. Here's, That's here's awesome. to Amy Kay and Lori. So uh, they're, they're, they're running good operations. So shout outs to them. So yeah. we are here with Kara Golden, you know, awesome entrepreneur, uh, more importantly, CEO of Hint, and of course, author of her upcoming book, Unbound, yay, and you got to check yay, it out. So. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You're terrific. Thank you so much, Kara. Undaunted. Check out the book, Undaunted. And of course, follow her on Twitter at K-A-R-A-G-O-L-D-I-N. So hey, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Uh, 
I, I love the product. My my entire household is a Hint household. Uh, so <laughs> no shame in plugging what I enjoy drinking every day. Our second guest, Ray, it's our privilege to have Sanan Aral, author, director of MIT's initiative on digital economy. Sanan is a scientist, he's an entrepreneur, he's an investor. He's a David Austin professor at management at MIT, director of the MIT initiative on digital economy, IDE, and a founding partner at Manifest Capital. Sanan was the chief scientist at Social Amp uh, and Humming. Uh, Sanan currently serves on advisory boards or Al Alan Turing Institute, British National Institute of Data Science in London, Centers of Responsibility for Media Technology and Innovation in Bergen, uh, Norway, and C6 Bank, and the first all-digital bank uh, of Brazil. He's the author of a new book, uh, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and our health and how we must adapt. Boy, am I looking forward to this topic. He is an awesome follow on Twitter at S-I-N-A-N-A-R-A-L. Welcome, Sanan, to Disrupt TV. Uh, it's so great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank hey, you thanks a lot for being on here. We're really excited. We've got Robots and Pencils sponsoring this uh, show. Uh, more importantly, we got to talk about the hype machine. What is in the hype machine? Why does it start? Um, you know, how do we even get into this, right? And I think this is one of the biggest. Uh, you know, you've got it, people are starting to realize what's happening to them. So, why did you write? And like, let's talk a little about the hype machine. Yeah. So. Uh... The hot documentary right now on Netflix is The Social Dilemma. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I highly recommend I it. I have. Yeah, it's eye-opening, right? So a bunch of my friends, and I'm so proud of them uh, for this documentary. It's fantastic. Uh, but really, this book takes off where that movie leaves off. Hmm. And so this is 20 years of research that I've done personally and four years of writing, and it's really about how social media works under the hood to do everything like disrupt our democracy, our economy and our health, but also what do we do? So one thing about the social dilemma is it's a clarion call for a lot of the problems that are occurring due to social media. And this book is about what can we do? How do we adapt and really solve the prob problems? You know, the point of the book is that we're at a crossroads now. We're at a crossroads between privacy and insecurity, between free speech and hate speech, between you know uh, free liberal democracy and authoritarianism, between uh, you know uh, security and privacy. And the point of the book is we can achieve the promise of social media and avoid the peril. And the point of the book is how do we do it? What do we do? What interested you in this topic? I mean, and you, and you have mentioned you were at a crossroad caught between the promise and the perils of, of the hype machine. 20 years of research, four years of writing, clearly you're deeply passionate in terms of understanding the root cause in terms of modifying behavior of stakeholders while they're active on, on, on social networks. What, what, is, what is it that drives your passion to do such deep research and uh, write about this topic? Yeah, you know, I was a PhD student at MIT, uh, and I started researching <clears throat> social media four years before Facebook was founded. And I've been 2000. Wow. In the wow. year 2000. Yeah. Wow. And, and I've been researching it ever since. And I've worked directly with Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Snapchat, WeChat, all of them on uh, very large research studies in the tens of millions of people in every study, experimental studies trying to understand, uh, as I describe in the book, what happens in our brain when we use social media? What are the behavioral consequences? How does information flow uh, in social media? <clears throat> For example, we uh, published a 10-year study <clears throat> with Twitter on the cover of Science in March 2018 about fake news uh, which was the largest study of its kind. And it showed, just as an example of one of the studies in the book, that fake news travels farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information. Wow. And political fake news is the most viral. And this is just an, one example of the tens of studies, you know, the hundreds of studies really that are uh, described in the book. That's amazing. That's amazing. 
Wow, I want to know what happens to my brain. Actually, <laughs> what happens to my serotonin receptors? Like you know, like yeah, right. Especially for people like you and I. I mean, we're pretty active on social. It's right. Like, I, I, I know. I guess it's like, uh... like it's like my digital diary when I totally. find something interesting. It's, well, it's you know, yeah. The the so there's a whole chapter, Ray. Uh, the the uh, uh, fourth chapter in the book is called your brain on social media that one that one's for you you'll really you really get a kick out of that one exactly what happens it goes through actually all of the neuroscientific evidence about what happens in our brains worse than heroin is what he's saying (laughs) well i mean it it does stimulate the dopamine reward system which is a big part of why it's so addictive uh and as well though our brains evolved over millions of years to process social signals. It's called the social brain hypothesis. So the invention of social media is really like tossing a lit match into a pool of gasoline because we evolved as a species to process these signals. Then we created a technology that delivers trillions of them to our brain every day. What does that mean for society? That's kind of the, uh, the, the, the point of the book. That's amazing. No, we get some great comments there as well. Hey, you know, but you know, as you know, as part of that, you now I was kind of joking about what happens to the brain, but not joking. There is a lot of science here, right? And your research really shows, you know, that you know this is actually a, a real issue. The way that they get, you know, that social media companies get you to continue to use the product. Um, this is really built on more engagement. It's really about capturing more of your time, right? And and I think that's that's what's interesting, right? It's about getting more of your time and attention to the point, you know, where they can actually then sell you some ads. So it's a competition for time and attention yeah. but what do we do going forward though like, yeah. can we fix this can we resolve this yeah, because totally. like right now like the, the next guest is also one of the most social people we know he's <laughs> gonna hop on too and he's the one's posting brian's posting all these questions like oh my god you know the same kind of comments that I, i'm getting you know what do we do right yeah what, what are some of those steps forward that you propose in the book without giving everything away in the book yeah totally i mean the, the i think the thing that makes this book different is number one it has a ton of stories that you've never heard about things that social media has impacted from the annexation of crimea to the 2016 uh, u.s presidential election i go through all the evidence about that what it's going to do to the 2020 election and what can we do about that as well as for instance uh there was a tweet that was uh that came out april in 2013 Uh, from the AP News Twitter handle. It was actually Syrian hackers had hacked the AP News Twitter handle. And this tweet went viral. It said that Barack Obama had been injured in an explosion in the White House. It wiped out $140 billion of equity value in minutes. And that was one tweet. There are trillions of tweets every day. So it's got stories like that. It's got all of the science about social media and how it works under the hood. And then getting to your question, the point of the book is what do we do? So it's got recommendations for the platforms, how they can change, for the policymakers, how we can regulate the the market failures, and for ordinary citizens. Like, how do we solve fake news ahead of this election? You know, really low-hanging fruit that everybody can adopt today that would really help us both deal with our mental health but also societal issues like the spread of fake news before a monumental election uh, in in just literally a few weeks. You know, if we count the you know month or two, like forty some days, yeah, yeah, forty some days. Uh, uh, so, do you, do you think that? Well, you said you work with all of the major social media companies with uh, a greater adoption and use of machine learning and advanced analytics uh, and, and, uh, uh, and the fact that companies understand uh, the uh, ethical and humane use of software and technology is, is, is something that uh, they need to consider in order to, you know, uh, to maintain a brand where people trust the company and the organization. Do companies need to have chief ethical officers? Do they need to take a stronger um, uh, responsibility in terms of maybe maybe in addition to be a you know a, a, not just a blue verified check but uh, somebody is uh, always scoring your 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 trustworthiness at some point do social media companies need to have a green mark red mark blue mark that says this is a measure of the percentage of content that this person or company or brand puts out there that they have fact checked can yeah. we get to that point where you know this yeah, trust deficit, trust yeah, trust scores. Um, I mean, I, I would think we're going to get to a point where we can validate uh, the truth in, in 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 near real time, given the advanced capabilities of these amazing AI-powered companies that are these social networks. 
Vala, did you write this book? You're, you're taking a page out of the book right there, okay? So, uh, so in the book, I describe the four levers that we have for really steering the ship into calmer waters and away from the rocks. Uh, and that is money, code, norms, and laws. Money is the business models that then perpetuate the incentives that the, that the platforms have for how they design. Code is the design of the platforms and the algorithms that run them, which shape both the human social network online and the flow of information over that network. Right. Norms, which is how we use this technology and also the societal values that we espouse through things like the delete Facebook movement or the stop hate for profit movement. And of course, the laws, which are how should policymakers really regulate uh, appropriately. And I go through all of the major questions. Should we break up Facebook? Should there be a federal privacy legislation in the United States? What should it look like? How do we protect our election integrity? Uh, and uh, free speech versus hate speech, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. All of those things are covered. To answer your question, the answer is yes. So part of the solution to the fake news crisis is exactly as you're describing, more labeling. So, you know, we just had Kara on talking about Hint and she was holding up the bottle and it had a label on it, right? It told you exactly how many calories it has, what was in it, et cetera. Uh, when you go to the grocery store to buy food, it's extensively labeled. You know how many calories, trans fats, if it, you know, is produced in a facility that produces wheat or peanuts if you have an allergy, but we have none of those labels when we're consuming information. We could put those labels of trustworthiness. Did I learn something? You know, is this healthy? What is the provenance of this information? How often is this source verified to be true? Can we machine learning, uh, use machine learning to label it? Can we use crowdsourcing to label it? Can we de uh, de develop reputations? All of these things are covered in the book and there are easy ways and uh, systematic ways that we can make this situation better. Do the platforms have a responsibility? Absolutely. So the leaders, the true leaders of what I call the new social age, the platform leaders are gonna be the ones that realize that the long-term shareholder value maximizing and profit maximizing strategy is the one that adopts societal values because you can uh, adopt like a short-term engagement model that spikes your revenue in the short term by engaging people with salacious hate speech and, and content like that. But over the long term, that's going to cost you in users, it's gonna cost you in trust, and all of those things are gonna come back to bite you when you don't align shareholder values and societal values in the long run. We also need a little nudge from the policymakers to put some guardrails on this thing. And I describe exactly how to do that as well. Wow. Uh, sorry, a follow-up question. Do you think for a company like Twitter, would that lead to a, a subscription-based paid model where you can't have an anonymous account, you're part of a trusted group where first name, last name, valid email, and it's a paid service, but it gives you that additional uh, 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 protection against misinformation and, and false news. Is that a new potential business model innovation opportunities uh, for companies to build this, uh, and it may be even on a distributed ledger, really scale trust and, and, and combine the power of blockchain and ML and create an environment where you know you can't just uh, use anonymity to be loud and even sometimes obnoxious in my opinion. Although I do appreciate the importance of anonymity when it comes to, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, you know, gaining the courage to share what is truthful news. I got to tell you, I mean, we got to have this conversation over over like a lunch or a dinner because you guys have such good ideas. So the so the the subscription model is discussed at length in the book. And what you notice about Facebook right now is they seem to be having strategic whiplash because they've got so much pressure that one minute, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg will come out and tout, tout perhaps a subscription model. Twitter does the same and then they back away from that. And the reason is they're trying to figure out like what's going to uh, stick in terms of confidence and trust in terms of users and society. And when they're floating these balloons and then pulling them back, that's kind of what they're doing is they're trying to you know dip their toes in the water. But a subscription model has costs and benefits the benefits which you describe, but some of the costs are that it becomes cost prohibitive for some people, which means that now suddenly you're creating an elite access to social media and other types of things. In some countries, Facebook is the internet. 
I was just talking to Maria Ressa, who's a friend of mine, who is the Filipino activist journalist, uh, who's who's the CEO of Rappler. And, you know, she was saying in the Philippines, Facebook is the Internet. You know, if you make it a subscription model, many people are going to be shut out and it's going to be people, uh, you know, minorities. It's going to be uh, people without economic means that rely on it for their small and medium sized business. So there are costs to that. I believe we can achieve uh, trust and other uh, types of the promise of social media without necessarily going to a subscription model. And so all of that is also covered in the book. You also mentioned, I have to say, you know, the ledger. So blockchain could be used to uh, create some distributed trust, to do some verification. And so there are ways that we can use technology, machine learning, AI, uh, uh, you know, blockchain uh, to bring some of that verification and trust into the system. I'm going to recommend your book to every business leader. Like I can't imagine any business leader in any company, in any industry, not having social digital savviness that's encompassed in your book. I mean, to me, it seems like it's uh, it, it's going it, to it has to be university level required courses uh, before you enter the workforce. It's so important. Ray, yeah. sorry, go ahead. I'm, I'm too enthusiastic about this topic. <laughs> no, no, you no, know, no, uh, great. It, it... you know, uh, Jonah Berger, who uh, many of you may know, has written a lot of great books. A friend of mine, he uh, he graciously and I'm so humbled to have him do it and, and several other people uh, wrote a blurb on the back and he called it part spy novel part science thriller but really the 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 chapters in the middle of the book are written for business executives yeah, for sure. it's really kind of a a how to blocking and tackling of strategies for this new hyper socialized world that I call the new social age it's a completely different world. So the CIO, uh, Rob Kane, the former CIO of Coca-Cola, describes the four decades of consumer engagement as single message in the 1980s, think Super Bowl ad, uh, uh, segmentation in the 1990s, think the difference between 18 to 24 year old gamers on one hand and soccer moms on the other, personalization with the invention of the internet where you can look at browsing history and prior purchase history. And really since 2010, it's been the era of the socially linked consumer where the consumer understands brands in the context of their social network and all of the information and user generated content that they're seeing in their networks. And what I tell my students at MIT is, uh, if you're still thinking about market segmentation, you're three decades behind. <laughs> you're right. You're Let so that right. sink in. You're so yeah. right. You're so right. You're and so people overlook people, people overlook the fact that Kara is on Twitter every day, connecting with consumers, just you know, liking the tweet that says "I love hands." She's humanizing the business by being accessible and being social. And I see so many business leaders that, with, that work and represent companies with beautiful brands but they're not actively social. So they're not humanizing the business. They're not creating that personalization at scale by just being accessible. It's, it's, uh, and, it's, it's a, it's Sinan, a competitive advantage. More. The, the fifth one that's missing is, is gonna be decision velocity because when AI makes a decision a hundred times per second and a human does one per second and takes a week to get it past management committee, now you know what's gonna happen. Right. So you're competing against the machines that are operating even faster. But hey, That's we're live right. here with CNN Arrow, author and director, MIT's initiative on the digital economy. And you can catch his new book here, The Hype Machine. Check it out. It's definitely an awesome book. Uh, you can pick it up anywhere on Amazon at the moment. He's got one in his hand. And of course, follow him on Twitter. And of course, it's a great class. So S-I-N-A-N-A-R-A-L uh, on Twitter. And uh, definitely check him out at MIT as well. So you, you crushed it. That was awesome. We could have talked to you for the entire hour. Thank you so much. Love Thank you, guys. You Thank much. you so much. Appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Ray. I mean, uh, you know, I got to read that chapter with, uh, you know, all three of us, by the way, because I don't know anyone more social than our last guest. Those dopamine shots that we're getting with all the channels that we're on. <laughs> but it's true. It's true. I, I won't get into the story, but it's, it's And so who true. knows more about dopamine then? Yeah. <laughs> our next guest. Uh, our next guest. A uh, repeat guest, one of our favorites. He actually helped launch our show, to be honest with you. Uh, when we launched in 2015, Brian was one of our first guests. Brian Fanzo, he's a speaker and change evangelist. He's a digital futurist keynote speaker who translates the trends of tomorrow to inspire change today. Really tactical advice he puts on Twitter every day with videos of him showing people how to achieve their full potential. 
He customizes personalized programs showcasing real-world stories and examples of forward-thinking people in business. He teaches companies of all sizes to leverage technology in real time in order to engage their customers at the right time across the right channel for the right reason. He's worked in 76 countries, probably travels as much as Ray, highlighting his passion for change and collaboration technology. He's the founder of iSocial Friends, Follow iSocial Friends on Twitter, which helps launch digital and influencer strategies with some of the world's most iconic brands, Dell, EMC, Adobe, IBM, UFC. He actually looks like a UFC fighter. <laughs> <laughs> Brian has been recognized as a top 20 digital transformation influencer, top 50 most mentioned by CMOs on Twitter, and top 20 social business leaders of future by The Economist. Unbelievable. His followers on social media across multiple uh, platforms, hundreds of thousands of followers and folks that are inspired by him. Uh, please follow him on Twitter at I-S-O-C-I-A-L, I-Social, F-A-N-Z, I-Social Fans. Welcome back, Brian, to the Shrug TV. Excited, excited to be back, but I can honestly say when you were like, I, I, we could talk to you all day. I was almost like, you guys can keep, skip me. I just want to, I want to hear more on the, on the previous day. I thought that was. Uh, we'll bring Sal back on now. No. And, and then I have my, I have my, uh, you know, product placement here as well. So. She's not yeah. here to see it. Darn. No, but, yeah, no, this is awesome. No, hey, look, we wanted to catch up with you, right? I mean, there's lots been going on. You are super active on social media at this moment, teaching people how to get on, teaching people what's next, putting out like PSAs almost too as well, trying to help people understand what's what's important. Uh, so let's start there, but you know, and really appreciate being on the show, so. Well, I'm excited to be here. Thanks guys for having me back. You know, for me, you know, my, my business full-time speaking, you know, traveling and speaking at conferences, which I get to hang out with you guys a lot. Um, of course, that all got disrupted between you know, March 10th and March 18th, uh, I lost my six full-time clients and 18 speaking gigs. Uh, wow, eight wow. Days. Oh so um, it was a disruption, although most of my business was built using virtual or social to sell offline. So a lot of people came to me and were like, Brian, this must be the perfect time for you. But switching to using virtual to sell virtual in a world that wasn't prepared for virtual um, is, is a whole different piece of it. And I think the other piece of this is, we all know forced change makes things very difficult. And the world got forced to change uh, you know, back in March. Uh, it was actually 180 days um, as of Wednesday this week when I went from, okay, now what does this look like? And so I've really went all in helping brands reinvent what a virtual experience looks like, right? I think you know, we've done live videos like this. I love that you guys have had the show you know, going for a long while, but there's a lot of people that you know, take an offline experience throw it online and expect the same results. And oh, no, we know no, that no, that's horrible. Right? I, I cannot attend another virtual event right now. It is dying. <laughs> like, and, and I say this because we're about to produce one um, for our conference, which we're gonna change completely, but, but it's just, there's no networking. Right, that you, there's no connection. Yep. Right, um, there's no shared immersive experiences. All that's been thrown out the window. Right, so how do you change that? I mean, how do you make it fun? So sorry, Vali, I just jumped in, but it's uh, it's well, something I mean, really like like I drives like that, me nuts I like right questions. now. Bad I think virtual that, events. I think that kind of comes into this idea, right? Like just saying that everything should be interactive, I think is a is a big mistake. Like not every talk, every presentation, every style of presentation should be interactive. But the reason I think we're using the word interactive is we don't want boring talking over slides. So instead we use the, the phrase, hey, we want an interactive presentation. And what I like to think of is we have to figure out ways to make every virtual experience participatory in the element of letting the audience participate, letting us, you know, bringing in comments, making that two way. But I can tell you the thing I think is still missing, which is, is and it actually kind of comes through into the hype machine and a lot of what we were talking about, the co-consumption of content the ability to experience something with someone else, right? Like when we're at an event and you know a keynote is done, what is the first thing we, we've been tweeting the whole time to the world, but we stand up together and we're, we're, we're debriefing, we're talking about our favorite things. And in the virtual experience, the keynote ends and it's a black screen yeah. and you hear your kids you know, screaming again in the background. And we're almost like, if there's such a polarizing, the screen has distanced us you know, a whole lot. And I think, you know, I, I, I tweeted this out a little bit earlier, like, I watched The Social Dilemma three times, my third time last night um, this week, because you know, for me, the, lever the use of fear 
to get people to make uh, change actions is not something I, I'm the optimist, like educate through your know, positivity and examples, but I also have a background in cybersecurity for nine years, right? So I understand <laughs> regulation, privacy, data management. And so for me, as I was listening, you know, watching that, I really wanted to kind of dissect what that was about, which is why our last guest, I was like, because for me, I think where we have to focus on virtual, where we have to focus on social, or what are the actions we can take to educate not only ourselves, but our community and our customers? Because although a lot of this, we want change in the social networks, I think a lot of the things we have to really focus on, you know, as consumers is what does that all look like? I, I knew you when you made a hard pivot career-wise uh, going from, you know, an IT architect, uh, cybersecurity expert, uh, to wanting to uh, become a, a storyteller, a futurist, someone who wanted to, uh, found joy in expanding your digital footprint. So, and I remember the hard conversations we had uh, because you didn't have the autonomy with your employer to pursue uh, what really gave you passion uh, and what really made you jump out of bed every morning uh, wanting to uh, teach and, and stay teachable. So it's March, you know, you, you're a father of three beautiful young girls, uh, you know, in that, in that cool uh, yellow Wrangler, <laughs> you buy a new house, you've got six major clients, 18 keynotes traveling around the world. I mean, you're in a groove and then suddenly a light switch and you're back to I, I suspect, because we haven't deeply talked about this, having to really personally reflect on another hard pivot uh, in a six-year span. Uh, so in, in less than a decade, you've had to make major transformational changes. What is your mind going through? When, I mean, because you're talking about your income. You're talking about your livelihood. You're talking about someone who's on a rocket ship heading to Mars with sky's the limit, and suddenly there's a check engine light and the rocket's coming back to Earth. How do you... Give advice to entrepreneurs. And I know lots of folks that haven't made the pivot like you. They haven't successfully found themselves in a groove where they are now adjusting to the next normal and crushing it. What do they need to do? What was that aha moment where you said, I'm going to just figure this out and I'm going to do it again? I love the way you brought that in because I, for me, part of it became I had to learn to be okay with not being okay which to me was very, was very difficult, especially as you said, I mean, my, I, mean, I was very lucky to do 64 speaking gigs last year and was, you know, my, my target goal this year was a hundred um, with, you know, all vast different kinds of, you know, organizations and background. I had just started growing my team. And I think, you know, I had, I had to be reflect and, and really I went through that grieving period. I think for a lot of people, we would, would have preferred to put our head in the sand and, you know, take a vacation and then try to come back. And then the second piece where I really went to was, okay, where can I, like, what can I do to double down on what I know best? And this comes into everything event space really, you know, more so is that how can you take what we do, what I was doing before COVID, before March 18th, and strip away the mechanics, take the mechanics and leave them there because those mechanics, I, I mean, I, I remember I said, I don't think I'll be on stage again until June, 2021. Now, what do I do until then? And I'm not someone that does a Band-Aid. I'm not a Band-Aid person. I'm like, okay, let's build something so that when I have too much business and the stage can come back in June of 2021, I can now handle this too much business problem, which I think we can all you know, be okay having. And so for me, it was you know, being okay with this idea of this unknown okay. And then this idea of, okay, how can I push forward and strip those mechanics away? And, and that's where it is. I think for events that are trying to take offline, online, offline mechanics are gonna make online events horrible. That's why Ray said he hates them. I mean, I did my 54th uh, uh, virtual event as either a speaker or a host today. And there is, a, you know, I've done it for lots of different groups. I mean, every different platform you can imagine. But there's, you know, there's also this idea of how can we grow together? And I think one of my secrets has been I have been unapologetically myself and as transparent as you could possibly get, right? I've been open with, you know, losing clients, been open with my, my own struggle with ADHD. I mean, I've worked from home almost my entire career, 13 uh, of the 17 years, but I've traveled at the least 40 weeks a year. And all of a sudden I've been home for six months. Like working from home was cool because I lived a very, you know, love life on the road. I got to travel and I've had to relearn some of the basics, right? I, I love being home with my kids, but like, how does this work in this environment? And so for me, part of it, I'd say the secret was learning to be okay with not being okay, 
willing to not only pivot, but innovate, right? Like pivoting, I think was like what a lot of us were kind of focused our radar, but how do we innovate in that space? How do we move those mechanics away? And then last but not least, just be, you know, owning it, right? Being as authentic as you can. Hey, this is what I'm going through. These are the things I'm dealing with. And I can tell you a lot of the clients, actually the three big um, people that I'm coaching right now, all three of them came to me, said, Brian, it wasn't until you explained about your um, sleep patterns with ADHD that I decide I wanted to work with you, right? And this is, wow. these are executives in Fortune 500 companies. And, and a lot of that had to do with that, like they, we can relate, right? And I think if you're trying to you know, put on a facade that everything's okay and you're working in this new environment, there's so many things bearing down on us that it just can be too much. Yeah, no, totally understand. I'm going to show you this really cool platform after this that we're going to use for networking at oh, our I, I logged into it. it. You sent me the link over the weekend. I did log into it. I did like that. I did. I, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to give me a little bit more deeper dive. I will do that later. It, when we said it's designed for serendipity. We're missing that in these events, Absolutely. right? We can't just like, oh my God, there's Vala. I'm going to go come and talk to him. Like, oh my God, Brian's hanging over there. Hey, wait, those two are talking. What's going on? Right? We're missing that, right? And to recreate that is, is really what we're trying to do at our event. But Hey, more importantly about you, like, so, so what's next, right? You're, you're, you're the optimist. You're the futurist. You're saying, look, 2021, I'm going to speak in June. I hope, you know, me too. I mean, like you, you and I both got crushed. Like I lost 21 <laughs> speaking gigs, like in this, in oh. the spring. Right. But it became virtual. It was okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, we could actually layer gigs that we couldn't do before unless they're all in Vegas or all in Orlando or all in Nashville. It completely changed, right? And so right. now I can do one in Europe at 3 in the morning, come back, do one at 8. I'm still in the house, right? I miss the food, though. <laughs> I miss the conversation. So what, what's next in 2021? Where do you see this? Well, I think you know, we hear a lot about the hype on hybrid, right? I think the hype on hybrid is being led by those that – have decided to ignore virtual and just wait until offline comes around, right? Like there's yes. a tendency for us that when the change is so polarizing and different, we would prefer to ignore it, hate on it, but you know, believe it's not going to exist. But I'm a big believer that virtual is going to be is going to change the way we do every offline event. But I'm also a big believer that virtual will never replace an offline event, right? I, I think this is yep, you know, yep, that yep. balance of you know when we go back to offline why do we need a screen with giant slides? Like, why do we need to take up that entire piece, right? We've learned how to put graphics and broadcast and overlays. What does an overlay and broadcasting look like on a stage offline in June of 2021, right? Like, how do we connect that? And I think the other piece of this comes into, what does it really mean for these offline events? Like, I think you know, one of the things, I, I reached out to a lot of sponsors of events and was like, I know you guys are missing out on your event. Like, what can I do to work with you? And I can tell you transparently, majority of them couldn't tell me what they got out of events. They just been doing them for forever, <laughs> right? It was like, and I was like, wait, you know, like our sales team kind of gets leads, but we could get leads off our email. And so one of the things I think we can do moving forward is re-examine what aspect of offline events is the most valuable for our time and our business. And then the pieces that we, we've kind of just kind of put up with how can they be supplemented virtually so that we maximize those times on the ground? I mean, like the days of us doing the five-day events you know, with both of you guys, like those events I have to transform <laughs> because there was an entire group that said, I'll never sit in front of a screen. I'll never work from home. I'll never do a Zoom call. Well, now they've been forced and they've seen the idea where you don't have to wear shorts all the time. You don't have to wear you know pants all the time and a lot of that world. So I don't think of it as much as a hybrid idea. Like when someone says hybrid, a lot of times they're like, well, some people on stage and some people online, I think we have to look at it and say, you know, what can we learn from virtual to reinvent what these offline experiences look like? And I think that's an exciting future. I tweeted yesterday. I was I was giving a keynote to 100 CXOs and they're, they're all CXO audience and the CMO or the lead event coordinator sent me a note that said, make sure you have a presentable background, make sure you have good lighting and please wear pants. <laughs> and I'm like, something I would have never expected in 2019 in terms of instructions to wear pants. And I, I, I think I obviously they were scarred for maybe a prior speaker <laughs> who decided not Do shorts to. count? Do yeah. shorts count? I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. As long as they don't have to wear socks. As long as they don't have to wear socks, I'm okay. Yeah, there we go. Exactly. So, oh my God, Brian, we, we were at this event doing a taping volley. We were at this event doing this taping in, in North Carolina in May and like, you know, and this is only like six, eight weeks out, right? You know, from all the lockdowns and everything, right? And so we're doing a taping, you know, everyone's being very careful. It's in this large art museum and 
we're in 20 minutes and we're standing there and everyone's like going like this. They're like moving around. We hadn't worn dress shoes in six weeks. Right, right, right. right. The women are going like right. this. The men are going yeah. like, it's just like, oh my God, our feet were killing us. We couldn't even figure out what was going on. So. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I do wear pants every day. Uh, and even, <laughs> I, I'll even put a sports coat on when I'm at home. But flip-flops since March. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think maybe twice I've had shoes on um, uh, in, in the last six, which is amazing. I, I can't, yeah. So, so Brian, um, uh, you know, without without naming names or without going too deep, like what what's disappointed you during this whole process? Like, whether it's individuals, brands, companies, like, you know, uh, have people? Are you seeing best of humanity during this pandemic, or are, are there moments where you just, you know, like we can be better? We, we you know, uh, have have the folks that you work with are they have they demonstrated loyalty, appreciation? Uh, do you still feel the same about people, companies, and brands before the pandemic as you do now? And I hate to put you on the spot, but yeah, I and I think I love I like that that question because I think we also have to give everyone a break because no one no one prepared for a pandemic and no one. I mean, I, I tweeted out. I remember back in uh, April I was like, "This pandemic's horrible." Like, I'm so glad it won't be around for my birthday in June. Right, like, like I would, you like what? I'm a great futurist. Like, like talking about like getting that wrong out of out of the gate. But I, I think we also kind of have to re-examine like what those relationships were and how we were working together. You know, I think as we look at some of the causes that are going out there. I mean, the fact that I mean, we as a society have to learn how that to get along if we disagree on things and be able to still work together and move forward. It's right. you know, I remember, and I think it was actually probably on this show when we talked about like, hey, what is the fall of 2020 going to look like when we are going to be more polarized and disconnected than ever before. Little did we know we were going to get March and everything that's kind of led up um, to that. And so I think one of the things we have to look at is like, you know, a lot of brands are coming to me with wanting to do virtual, wanting to create these events, believing in community, believing in education, but it gets to a point where it's so much new and so much different that I get a lot of emails that said, Brian, we love where we are going, but we've decided to shift our focus or repurpose that money. And I think that's a mistake because I think we made that mistake years ago, not investing in community, not building trust with our, our, sure. our customers. Sure. And those that didn't do that have really struggled, right? I loved Kara's example of DoorDash, right? Like DoorDash just added in my local area, 7-Eleven and Walgreens, right? Like I haven't gone in a grocery store or a restaurant because I pick up my groceries from the, the, the pickup stand, I order them on my phone and DoorDash comes to my house, right? So like there, there is an element of like that trust and repercussions. And then I think the last part of this is we have the coolest opportunity. I mean, I'm an optimist, right? Of all things. Yeah. The idea that we get to shape what the future looks like and decide together to me is the most exciting thing, right? Like if there's anything we can learn about the pandemic is that we are more alike then we are different, yeah. right? Every country was impacted. Every person, race, religion, you know, there was, everyone was impacted in this pandemic. And so I believe it's part of this is like asking ourselves to answer the questions that we believe we've already answered. And if we can do that, right? Like, why do I care about this? Why do my people need to work in my, my, my building? And, you know, a caveat to that is just because people work from home doesn't mean they don't want to get together, right? So for all these businesses that are getting rid of their offices and telling everybody to work from home, you better plan on quarterly trips for retreats and events and meetings. If not, that that separation anxiety, that disconnection, the out of sight, out of mind feeling only grows, right? Like my team, every quarter for five years, I had 32 people that were all remote. We Every quarter we met at an event and that was, you know, five days. Same here, same here. So that we could trust each other yeah. for the other amount of days when we are working from home. And so, sure. you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an optimist still. I still believe in this piece forward. You know, and I think like things like the social dilemma, although the first time I watched it being very feeling, feeling like it was very polarizing and a little bit one sided in like who they interviewed, lack of diversity in the people sharing mm. opinions. Right. Mm. The more I looked at it, the more the conversations are creating. I do think we have to educate ourselves. You know, if we're getting something for free, we know we're paying with our data. But what does that mean to us? And like, how do these things go forward? So my my focus is rather than leading with that fear, leading with the education. And I think I would say my prediction is that transparency becomes the new secret weapon. The more transparent a leader can be, the more transparent a brand can be, the easier it will be for us to adapt in the future. 
And you, you demonstrated that with examples of your radical transparency, talking about some of the struggles that you had faced. And now you have executives that want to learn from you because they trust you. Because as Brené Brown has said for many years, when we demonstrate and show vulnerability, that's how we can establish deep-rooted trust. So kudos, my man. You're Thank crushing you. it. You continue to crush it. You inspire people every day on multiple social uh, networks and channels. And uh, yeah, it's uh, you're a role model in terms of the mindset we all need to adopt as we go through this. Thank you, guys. Coming live from the world's largest shared reality experience. Oh, wait, what is that? Our life. Um, anyways, <laughs> awesome. We're with Brian Fanzo, speaker and change evangelist. You can follow him at Twitter, at iSocialFans. More importantly, great digital futurist. Uh, seeing what's next for brands and everyone out there. We'll catch you on the post show. Talk to you later. Cheers. Thanks for being on. Uh, he's, he's remarkable. He's truly a change agent. Uh, and he believes every word that he shares uh, and, and his actions speak louder than his words, which is what remarkable people all have in common. No, I mean, uh, he's right. definitely shared everything about his life in front of everyone. I mean, it's like yeah. about what happened, how he's changing, how he's thinking. You know, I think it's inspired a lot of people who are going through the same thing. Like we didn't know what was going yeah. on. Right. I mean, but, but, but it's but it's purposeful share. He's not sharing just to invite us into, you know, oh, no, no, he's sharing for other people to yeah. learn. Yeah, exactly. Learn, which is exactly. amazing. Very purposeful. Very purposeful. Uh, episode, episode 207. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. We have Dan Javons, general manager at Shell. We have Asha Aravan Dashan. <laughs> Did I say that right? Aravan Dakshan, vice president of customer delight and operation at Sprinkler. And Cheryl Sullivan, president of Demand Tech by Acoustic. As our three guests next week. Ray, closing remarks on... Uh, an incredible CEO, an incredible academic who's just deep diving into this phenomenal uh, science and art of social networking, and of course, our futurist, uh, Brian. You know, the story of the future is being written, and uh, I think we're in the middle of it. I think we're going to be shaping that. I think a lot of folks are making that true. Uh, I think we have a chance to actually change some things that didn't work for a lot of folks. We also have a chance changed, uh, to create improvements that people have not expected. Um, and that's really kind of what's next, right? And I think the next 6 to 12 months is a chance where all that reset's going to happen. Uh, and some are things we might not like. Some are things that we have a lot of control over. And some are things uh, we're, we're all going to change together. And, and I think that's what we should be looking out for. I agree. I agree. All right. All right. Uh, well, hey, thanks, everybody. <laughs> Happy Friday. We're going to see you back next week and with awesome, awesome event. next lineup. So talk to you guys later. Have an awesome weekend, and we'll see you next.